Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. Water is one of our most precious natural resources. We can't live without it, and we have a. That's why it's so important to not only manage how we use it, but also how we reuse it. Today, we are joined by CEO and co founder of Epic Clean Tech, Aaron Tartakovsky, whose company has been working to create more sustainable methods for water and wastewater management. With the world's growing population, aging infrastructures, and increasing concerns of water scarcity due to climate change, we have a greater responsibility to ensure this vital resource keeps flowing to everyone who needs it. We'll talk about how new strategies are being implemented by Epic Clean Tech, and hopefully you'll learn a little more about ways you can help also. Aaron, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. You know, I, I don't know if I can ask you the question I always ask my first, my guests right out of the gate, because I usually ask them, how do they become a weather geek? But in this case, how did you become a water geek? How did you how did you get into water management? Yeah, you know, it's not a it's not a straight line. You know, I think I, I, I touched on a few different careers. At one point, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Then I wanted to be a chef. Then I wanted to be a rabbi at one point. And then uh, and then most recently, I actually worked in federal politics. So I actually got into this world. Uh, because a, a few guys came together and had a good idea. You know, there was a group of scientists in Israel who were, who were doing work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation through their Reinvent the Toilet Challenge to basically come up with new ways to deal with the fact that there are about 4 billion people worldwide without access to clean water and reliable sanitation. Those scientists ended up meeting a third engineer who also happens to be my co-founder and father, Igor, so Igor was trained in aerospace science in the Soviet Union, came to this country in the 70s, moved into the building sciences and has been designing building for the last 40 years all throughout the country. And we all came together and basically said, you know, how do we take some of the developments we were doing in more of a developing world context with the Gates Foundation and scale that up into cities? And I was brought in as the, the middleman, the guy who uh, had lived in Israel, speaks speaks Hebrew, could sort of be the, the the connecting point between this Israeli group of people, this American group of people, and then you know utilizing my background in federal politics because when it comes to water, uh, things get political really fast. I live in Georgia. I know all about it with some of the water issues we've had here with the Chattahoochee and Lake Lanier and Florida and Alabama and so forth. So I definitely resonate with that last statement. Mm-hmm. Um, let me give the listeners a bit of your background. You're the co-founder and CEO of Epic Clean Tech. You previously served as director of business development and marketing at CB Engineers, uh, where you created the R&D division. 
Uh, you, as you mentioned, you've been involved in public policy and federal politics. You gradu- graduated from Tufts University, uh, magna cum laude, and has a master's degree in political science from Tel Aviv University. Uh, you also, and this is interesting, served as co-author of the Non-Potable Water Reuse Practice Guide, which was published in 2018. And I'll probably want to ask you a little bit about that later. But I want to kind of dig more into to epic clean tech. Uh, I know because I do a lot of research uh, here at the University of Georgia on urbanization and its impact on weather and climate. And I know that by the year 2025 or so, or 2050, I should say, 70% of people will live in cities. Mm -hmm. That really has implications for water use and management. Give us sort of the rundown on what the key water challenges are uh, in in a rapidly urbanizing society. Yeah, look, you know, I think it really comes down to a basic issue of supply and demand. You know, we have more and more people putting more and more demand on our finite water supplies. Now, it's not that we don't have the water. You know, I think by virtue of the hydrological cycle, we have, you know, we have a set supply. It continues to cycle through, but it's not in the places where we need it. And so with more and more people moving into cities, you know, they they have their own demands. You're, you know, you're building, you're adding more structures, using more water, but then you still have folks, you know, for example, in ag who are oftentimes outside of cities and they have their own water demands too. So it's about kind of creating that balance of making sure that we have enough water supplies to meet all of these growing demands. Because as you said, we have more and more people moving into cities. You know, the urban population is going to continue to grow. We don't see any, any uh, sort of signs of that slowing. So really kind of what it comes down to is how do we ensure that we're going to have enough water supplies to make sure that cities continue to be livable? You know, one one thing, uh, and I'm curious if you sort of agree with this or have a different perspective on it, but my perception is a lot of people here in the United States perceive water scarcity and water availability issues and even water quality issues as things for developing countries or so forth and not something that here in Atlanta or, or, or Chicago needs to be a concern. But then if you look around the landscape of the United States and the water rights issues in the West and the demands on uh, shrinking Lake Mead and things like that, and even the, some of the things I mentioned here that we've been dealing with in Georgia, there clearly are issues here. Um, do, do you find that people here in the U.S. have that perspective as, or is that are, are we privileged in thinking of it that way? Uh, I think you're 100 percent right. You know, I think I have the sort of the vantage point of having come into this industry about seven years ago. So I, before that was like a lot of people where, you know, I thought, look, you know, when I flush my toilet, things move away. When I turn on the tap, water comes out. And I took that all for granted. Um, But, you know, I think what I've since learned is that we very much do live in what I like to call a flush and forget society. You know, we have designed our infrastructure of pipes and facilities to very literally be out of sight, out of mind. We put them under our roads. We put facilities, you know, way out away from sort of where people live. And that is kind of what has created this, this, this mindset of, you know, these are not our issues. Now, of course, you know, when we do have a Flint, Michigan, that's sort of a shock to the system. People all of a sudden start to realize, whoa, you know, what's going on here. But then we sort of go back to our, our normal way of thinking of, well, that's just a one-off. You know, that's that's just one place. But um, what I've come to discover working in this industry is that there are going to be more flints. Um, There's going to be a lot more challenges that continue to sort of rise to the surface. And it's not just an issue of water scarcity. I mean, in some places we have too much water. You know, we're seeing water flooding, Um, you know, I, I think especially around sort of where you're living down in the Gulf, down in Florida. So I think, you know, no matter how you measure it, 
water is going to continue to to be one of the things that we feel most acutely as part of the sort of the impacts of climate change. And we're talking with Aaron Tartakovsky, and he's with Epic Clean Tech. And yeah, water is really the birth of civilizations. If you look at where cities developed and where civilizations have sort of planted itself over time, it's near water because water literally is the lifeblood of society. It's the lifeblood of our bodies, but it's the lifeblood of commerce, uh, sustenance, agriculture, and so much more. Yeah, I mean, Give me a 101 on what your company's up to, what tech, what, what are you bringing to the table? Because as you've mentioned, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it, climate change is actually a, an, a, an amplifier or a stressor or an accelerant on this problem coupled with population. So what is Epic Clean Tech bringing to the table? So Epic Clean Tech is helping cities to become more resilient by deploying on-site water reuse systems into buildings or into individual buildings. So what that means is, you know, we'll go into a high rise in downtown San Francisco or Atlanta or Boston or New York, all that wastewater. So water from your toilets, your showers, your sinks, your laundry, everything that would normally go off into the sewer. We actually intercept that right in the basement of the building. We capture that water, we treat it and we reuse it right on site. And we, with our approach can actually help reuse up to 95% of a building's water, which means that is 95% less drinking water that we now have to pull from the city supply. And instead we can recycle that on site. And, and importantly, this is non-potable water. So this is not drinking water. We're reusing water for toilet and urinal flushing, for cooling towers, for irrigation, for laundry. But you know, when you actually look at it, the vast majority of our water use in a building, whether it's residential or commercial, is non-potable. So we're actually able to reuse a lot of water this way. Give the Weather Geeks listeners and me, because I'm not a, um, a water engineer, a wastewater engineer, give the Weather Geeks listeners a brief 101 on what I wrote down here. How does a current water wastewater system work? I mean, I, I think we flush, as you said, we flush our toilets and forget about it, or we use our dishwashing, <laughs> we yeah. turn our dishwater on and it goes somewhere. Um, give us a little one-on-one on, on sort of what, what happens to it right now before one of your clean tech systems is in place. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we, in, in most of the developed world, we continue to use an approach that is essentially 200 years old, which is to say, you know, we bring water in, you know, via, via sort of long labyrinthine networks of pipes under our streets. Those come into our buildings. We use that water and the water, the wastewater that we then send out from the building goes back through a separate, uh, separate sort of uh, maze of pipes down to a central facility. That's typically how we do it. And at that facility, there's a few basic steps. One, you remove all the solids from the water. Those solids, sometimes referred to as sludge, we then dispose of in different ways. Sometimes it can be beneficially reused, for example, for crops. Uh, but a lot of times it just goes to landfill where it sits giving off emissions. Once the solids are removed, the water is then treated. Now, there is a million different ways you can treat water. Um, so I think we'd need another podcast to go through every single one of those different <laughs> treatment processes. a couple of the most common ones? Just... Yeah. So, you know, I think look, there's there's primary treatments, secondary treatment and tertiary treatment. And, and basically what a lot of these places are doing is actually using natural microbes to actually natural biology to break down the organics in the water. So I think, you know, one really easy way to think of it is almost like your stomach biome. You know, we have all sorts of microbes. We have your stomach biome that breaks down the organics. Effectively, what these large wastewater treatment facilities is something very similar, where it's a combination of physical separation 
meaning actual screens and, you know, and micro screens that are actually pulling the solids out and then biology that is actually helping to uh, break down those organics. And then, you know, depending on what the end use of the water is, some places use, you know, ozone, UV, reverse osmosis to take that water to sort of the next step. Now, some places, if you're just discharging it into nature, you don't need to treat it to super high quality standards. But in other places where they are actually reusing that water, take a place like San Diego, where they have a pure, pure water San Diego project, they're treating it to much higher levels so that that water can then one day, again, be potable water. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Aaron Tartakovsky from Epic Clean Tech, and we're talking about some new technology. You know, one of the things I've often talked about is with climate change, you, you hear about technology will get us out of the climate change crisis. And I, I do believe that, I, you know, from, a, from an emission standpoint and sort of carbon uh, footprint and so forth. I think there's some technologies and a, and a shift to a new type of economy, but I just don't think people think about climate change and water here in this country. And again, I've alluded to this. Why do you, why do you and your company focus so much on or think about climate change? Clearly it has implications for your business. Yeah. Well, you know, look, I think you touched on it earlier that water touches everything. It's not just about cooking and cleaning and showering. I think water is, is present in almost every single industry we touch. You know, water is used for the food we eat. Water is used to make the blue jeans that a lot of us are wearing. Water is used in industry to produce steel, to produce all these different materials that we use to build. Um, and, you know, I think water, for example, is used in data centers. So as we know, more and more technology companies, they need data, they need cloud infrastructure. These data centers need to be cooled. And the average data center uses about the same amount of water as a 50,000 person city. So without water, we can't grow our cities, we can't grow our industries, and we can't survive as a people. So, you know, I think when I mentioned earlier that water is going to be one of the first ways that we feel climate, you know, we, we see it in different ways. We see it through drought. We see it through extreme flooding, flooding, which, you know, I think all is, is one of the most intense, intense impacts of climate change that people all around the world are seeing. And, you know, I think also for us, you know, we see the impacts of, of, you know, refugees. We see communities of people who maybe had been, you know, farming in communities for hundreds of years who now don't have water and they become climate refugees. So, you know, I think those are sort of the big macro trends now for us as a company and how we work. Uh, it comes down to the fact that our water and wastewater infrastructure uh, is not in good shape. You know, it's the reason why we're hearing so much about this infrastructure plan um, we need a lot of work. We need a lot of investment into our water and wastewater infrastructure. And most of our utilities, you know, are basically uh, hard pressed to be able to find the money to be able to fund all of that. 90% of all spending on water and wastewater infrastructure is done at the local level. And the only way our utilities, whether it's in a big city or a small one, the only way they can actually fund all of their repairs and maintenance is to increase our rates. So we pay more for water. We, we pay more for sewers. So what we actually end up doing is we come into these projects, 
by helping them to reuse water and discharge less wastewater into our municipal systems, they save money. However, our utilities are also benefiting because we basically are acting as extensions of their operations. So we're diversifying the water supply portfolio, ensuring that we have more recycled water, more water to use. And we're also helping them deal with wastewater. I think in a lot of places where we do see flooding, we have what are called combined sewers. What happens is big rainfall events happen. All this wastewater overloads our municipal utilities and wastewater ends up being discharged into our bays and our rivers and our oceans. And, you know, I think we can all agree discharging raw sewage into our natural waterways is, is not a good thing for anyone. Yeah, and I think you're, you touched on a couple of key points because with climate change, we've got the extreme rainfall events that you just mentioned, but then you on the other side of the ledger have sort of variability in drought, particularly in some developing nations. And you, you mentioned about climate refugees, and I'm glad you mentioned that, but something else I read and I was a part of a few years ago is this idea that because of some of these same issues of water availability and agricultural stress, which leads, which leads to climate refugees, it also leads to political destabilization too. Uh, when, you, when you have uh, organizations that capitalize on sort of the hardships of vulnerable people and you have immigration issues as people are trying to go and find water and ways to sustain their lives, it creates just all kinds of instabilities that leads to political conflict too. And I've read studies on that. So water, I've often said this, water is the new oil in terms of, of political strife and, and climate, uh, climate uh, vulnerability and risk in this country. I want to dig a little bit into your company uh, without, you know, I, I know you can't tell us about your proprietary things, but you know, what I think your company is a company of today and the future. I mean, I, I just think the the engineering, the technology and innovation that you're bringing to, ta- to the table is solving today's problems. Mm-hmm. What kind of people do you have in your organization? What are the backgrounds? Yeah, we you know we've we've got a, a whole mix of different people. So I think you know one thing that makes us us unique is that our four co-founders actually come from outside of the water world. So we are a plant scientist, a nanobiotechnologist, a former you know Soviet aerospace scientist turned building engineer, and then myself. You know, I like to call myself a recovering political operative. So all four of us kind of come into this with a pretty, you know, outsider perspective. But I think actually that's part of our special sauce is that we came in not necessarily, conf- you know, sort of confined to how things have been done for the last 200 years. And I think that's one of what's enabled us to kind of start to think a little bit outside of the box. But one thing we've done is, is grow a team that basically touches on every single part of the value chain. Now, it all comes back to us living in a flush and forget society. You know, we understand we're going to go to a building owner. They have a high rise in, you know, in downtown San Francisco. And we're coming in and telling them we want to, you know, we want to reuse water in their building. What they're hearing is these guys want to come and put a sewage recycling machine in my basement. So we basically have sort of built an approach where, you know, we're going to help simplify the entire process. We're going to make this thing a lot less scary. So we get involved in the early stages, helping them to design and engineer it. We have regulatory and permitting specialists of so people with sort of a policy and government affairs background all the way through sort of construction assistance. And then we actually have a team that operates and maintains these things, which means we don't just deliver a system to a building and say, okay, there you go. It's going to work. And you figure out how to run it for the next 20 years. We actually have a team to do that. And then, and really importantly, we have an entire sort of PR and marketing team that is raising these issues because we fundamentally believe it's not just about introducing a new technological solution. 
you know, we need to fundamentally change the conversation around water because if we continue to treat water like we do, which is to say, not really think about it much, these issues are not going to change. They're not going to get solved. And, uh, you know, I think we've, we've built again, a very sort of comprehensive team kind of touching on a lot of different things, but, you know, ultimately the technology is just one piece of the whole puzzle, but really what we're doing is we're stitching together technology. We're bringing together business and elected officials, and we're bringing together smart policy. And I think you kind of need all three of those things to be able to change something like our water and wastewater infrastructure, which, you know, is a big, massive industry that uh, is not necessarily prone to, to massive, massive changes in how we do things. I just had a question that came to mind thinking about the recent polar vortex winter power losses and flooding. And you alluded to this with the new Biden infrastructure bill. It's, I guess it's a bipartisan bill. It's not just Biden or uh, Republican senators that have been involved and so forth. And it's, you know, a bipartisan, and I'd love to see more bipartisanship in our policymaking in this country. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned the vulnerability of our infrastructure. I mean, people were without water. I mean, we can we we landed at one, the most sophisticated Mars rover ever on Mars uh, this year. Yet after a storm, people are without water for weeks. Uh, how how do we get here with this water infrastructure problem? Yeah, no, look, it's a great point, and that's a great example to illustrate exactly what it is that we're trying to do. You know, I think. We recognize that our infrastructure, sort of the centralized infrastructure, which is basically big plants, and this is true for energy as it is for water, big plants connecting to all of our homes, all of our communities, it works really well. You know, these these are marvels of modern engineering, but they need to be maintained. They need to be repaired. And a lot of times we aren't maintaining and repairing these this, this massive infrastructure at the rate that we need it to. So, you know, I think we actually look at that example of what happened in Texas and we think, you know, that's a good, that's a pretty good warning for what is going to happen and continue to happen with water and wastewater infrastructure. I mean, to give you an example, you know, here in San Francisco, we have about a thousand miles of pipeline under our streets. 300 miles of that was built a hundred years ago. So basically 30% of our infrastructure was built, you know, in my mind by bearded prospectors with pickaxes who came here looking for gold, Uh, you know, that's not going to sustain us as we continue to move forward. And, you know, none of this is a surprise to the water and wastewater utility folks, but we basically, if we just continue building the same way and just reliant on just only big centralized infrastructure, we're never going to keep up. And right now we're seeing almost a, you know, a 40% spending gap on water and wastewater in terms of what's being spent to maintain all this and what needs to be spent. And so we actually believe at Epic that sort of looking at sort of the, the, the pitfalls of big uh, of a sole reliance on big centralized infrastructure is a perfect reason why we need to move towards a more distributed approach. And, you know, I think, look, look at solar, look at wind. It's not going to replace big centralized infrastructure, but by having centralized and decentralized working together, we have more resilient overall systems. You know, we're not reliant on, you know, if one goes down, we still have the other one that we can use. And I think the exact we, we see we see the exact same approach with water wastewater. You know, we're just 10 to 15 years behind the energy guys. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. 
CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. I'm speaking with uh, Aaron Tartakovsky of Epic Clean Tech. And I'm, I'm, though I'm a weather, I'm a meteorologist and a climate scientist, I'm very much interested in this because actually at the University of Georgia, I'm a, uh, in an institute called the Institute for Resilient Infrastructure Systems. Uh, it's run by my colleague, Dr. Brian Bledsoe. Shout out to Brian Bledsoe at the University of Georgia. And, uh, you know, as I've been exposed to what uh, IRIS is trying to do, uh, these types of challenges have been more in the forefront of my thinking. Now, as a garden variety sort of member of the public, and like I consider myself and many of our listeners, I mean, maybe everyone can't have an epic clean tech system in their building or in their home. What are some things that people can do, you know, individually to help with this water crisis and water availability challenge? Yeah, look, it, the, when it comes to water, you know, there is no one size fits all solution. I think it's very much dependent on your geography. So in the Western states, you know, people we're hearing all the time about the drought. We're at a moment now where when you go to a restaurant, a lot of times they're actually going to say, look, we're only going to provide water to people if they actually ask for it. I mean, we are in, we, we are in day zero right now. You know, we just shut down our first hydroelectric plant in a very long time, a plant that basically can't run because there's not enough water to supply it. So, you know, we're, we're kind of in crisis moment right now. We understand that. But in terms of what the individual can do, you know, it's being conscious about your water use. I think irrigation is frankly a very big one. Um, you know, now is probably not the time to build out your big lush garden. Maybe start moving towards California natives or other, or other sort of drought tolerant plants. Um, but I think it's also making your voice heard. You know, coming from sort of a federal background, a federal political background, I understand that, you know, any politician, any elected official, they're hearing about a million different issues every single day. You know, you, you mentioned you, any single topic you can think of, they're probably hearing from their constituents about it. But it's the issues that they hear a lot about, the issues that are sort of rising to the top that are the ones that are really getting their attention. And if people aren't making their, their voices heard about these water issues and the importance of it, um, things are never going to get done. And, you know, I, I often say when people ask, how do we get to this point with our infrastructure? The way I see it, you know, if you're an elected official, it's a lot easier to get elected to office if you come in and say, I'm going to fix our schools and our playgrounds and our parks. Then I'm going to come in and fix our water and wastewater infrastructure and dig up our streets and mess up your morning commute. So I understand why a lot of people aren't necessarily going to prioritize that, but I think it is changing now. Um, and I think it's changing and, and, and we're seeing that now in the way sort of our, uh, you know, whether it's on the federal level or here in California and the state level, we're hearing talk of people talk about water and wastewater in a different way because uh, it's starting to impact people in a much more devastating way than I think it ever has. And I think as someone myself who's sort of engaged in the political arena by briefing Congress or advising colleagues at the White House and so forth, I've kind of dabbled in the political spectrum. And I agree, I think I'm hearing more conversations sort of intersecting water and climate issues across policy and across agencies. And I, I think that's a good thing, no matter what your politics are, whether you're red or blue. I mean, the, the water doesn't care uh, if you're a Republican or a Democrat. You turn on the faucet and not there. It, it didn't care how you to think about that as well. Uh, your background in politics, how did it help prepare you for what you're doing now at Epic Clean Tech? You know, I think it, it's helpful just to understand how we got to this place. You know, how, how we got to a point where, you know, there's a, in some, some estimates, a trillion dollar price tag over the next 25 years to overhaul just our water and wastewater. You know, not even mentioning transportation or energy or any other sort of element of infrastructure, just water and wastewater is fetching those types of costs. And 
and understanding kind of how the sort of the, 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 the levers of power work uh, is really helpful to understanding how do you actually shift a, an extremely regulatory heavy industry like water and wastewater. And I think what a lot of people sometimes don't realize is, you know, if you're a software startup or, or you know, a company in, you know, more of a frontier space, it's not to say there's no regulations, but, you know, uh, you're effective. It, it, it is almost a little bit like the Wild West where you're, you know, you're charting new territories, you're inventing new industries, you're upending uh, existing industries. And it's only now that we're starting to see some of that, you know, some of the, 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 the regulatory side of things coming in and saying, okay, well, we need to have, put some more controls on this. You know, water and wastewater, like transportation, like medicine, these are, these are centuries old uh, industries. They're not prone to change very quickly. Um, you know, in, in the case of water and wastewater, a lot of these, it's mostly run by public utilities, which means they're using public money. They're naturally and understandably risk averse because at the end of the day, they're protecting public health. That's, that's sort of the, the foremost responsibility of these utilities. Um, but the bottom line is that if we don't change the way we're doing things, if we just maintain the status quo, these problems are only going to get worse. And, and really kind of what it comes to for us is that in the 21st century, with the technological capabilities that we have, we shouldn't have to rely on whether or not it rains to know if we're going to have enough water supply for our communities. I mean, that's the basic thesis. I mean, that's, it's, I, mean I, I almost should just end the show there because that's one of those mic drop moments, in my opinion. I think you're spot on with that. Uh, where can people find out more about your company or on social media or on the Weather, on, on the weather Channel? Uh, shout out to the Weather Channel. This is the Weather Channel's podcast, Weather Geeks. Oh. You probably have been on the Weather Channel. But uh, where can people find out on social media or the Internet about your company? Sure. Well, of course, you can come to our website, epiccleantech.com. Importantly, it's T-E-C, so no H on the end, epiccleantech.com. And then you know, we're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. So, you know, you can find us in, in many different ways. Yeah. And this is honestly a great, I mean, I, we're, you're going to see us do more shows on weather geeks. And for those of you that are listeners, you know, we talk about weather topics and we geek out on weather, but we talk about climate as well. But uh, we're trying to dabble in the solution space as well. We don't want to just talk about the gloom and doom. What are we doing about it? And I think Aaron Tartakovsky and Epic Clean Tech exemplify just that. So I'm glad we were able to have you kind of end it here. But before we do, it's time for our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is J.D. Huffman. J.D. is an amateur forecaster who has been studying and following the weather for 12 years. He loves thunderstorms and, of course, also loves to chase them. He first started doing that in 2017, although he loves a good thunderstorm, the most memorable weather event he experienced with Hurricane Florence in 2018, which, as we know, caused widespread flooding across North Carolina. J.D. also has autism, but he uses that, that to his strength. He's a registered Skywarn spotter and is now a freshman at Gaston College, where he will be studying meteorology. Congratulations, J.D., and best of luck in your career. You can follow him at Twitter at J.D. Huffman H.W. Yes. And if you know someone that you want to nominate to be a Geek of the Week or you think you should be one yourself, be sure to follow our social media pages. Thank you, Aaron, so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. 
Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for, for shining a light on these important issues. Oh, absolutely. I, my life depends on it. And so does our everyone else's. And thank you all for listening and uh, continue to listen to us on Weather Geek. It's going to bring you some interesting guests like Aaron along the way. See you next time on Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia.